Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richmond. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Mark Long, Director of Middle East Studies and Associate Professor in the Honors College at Baylor University. Dr. Long specializes in contemporary Islamic fundamentalism, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and extremism in America. Before coming to Baylor, Dr. Long served 11 years on active duty as a Middle East analyst and as an instructor at the Air Force Academy, where he taught Arabic and English literature. We are delighted to have Dr. Long on the show to discuss teaching in multiple contexts, the good and bad of addressing politics in the classroom, and his reflections at the close of his teaching career. Mark Long, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christopher. I want to begin by congratulating you on receiving the Outstanding Faculty Award in Teaching recently here at Baylor. And I'd love to hear you just reflect on what that teaching award means to you, how you interpret such an honor, what's being recognized in your own teaching by something like that. I can say it really is a great honor, and I'm sure others uh, would have said the same thing. Uh, I can say that I owe so much to so many that would make it possible. Uh, And again, I'm sure others have said something similar. And I recognize that there are other very, very capable teachers uh, on campus who certainly are deserving of the award. But what strikes me most about this is uh, what I would call the almost complete implausibility of my, my winning. And uh, that, uh, that requires a story, if I may. Please. As, I, as I've thought about what this represents. Uh, I went to high school in Houston in the 1960s. And I, I, was, uh, I was setting new records, I think, for mediocrity at best in high school. I was not, I was not a good student. I was not motivated. Uh, part of it, uh, in all likelihood, was my own family background, uh, uh, a dysfunctional family. But when I was in high school, I played golf. Uh, I owned a surfboard and would go down to uh, Galveston or to Surfside. I'd spend time with my friends, as all high schoolers would, uh, dated a lot. But as a student, it just wasn't there. Uh, I recall that I flunked chemistry. I flunked biology. I did okay in PE and did uh, pretty well in math. But um, German, for instance, and English... Uh, those were a wash. And I recall in my English class, I had, uh, I look back now and I think I had an outstanding teacher and I didn't really derive the benefit from that that I could have. Uh, I don't recall reading a single book in high school that was assigned. I was just too lazy to do it. And uh, I recall that as the exam would approach a couple of times, I got the cliff notes. I was too, ra- too lazy to read the cliff notes. And I would go into a, to an essay exam. I would look at the back of the book, the description uh, of, say, uh, Les Mis, one of the texts that we had, and then try to bluff my way through an essay exam 
with my rice-educated English teacher. It didn't work very well. Uh, and what I did in class generally was just to, to try to make light of it. And at a certain point, my teacher, who had a great deal of patience with me, more than she should have possibly, began calling me her Harlequin because I was the class clown. Well, I graduated uh, from high school, uh, shuffled across the stage. It was no, um, <laughs> it was not a glamorous thing because I really was such a poor student. Um, I had no plans for college. My dad insisted that I go. I had no idea where to go. He said, well, go to the University of Houston. It's close by. It's actually cross town. We lived in West Houston. I didn't have any idea what I might major in. He said, major in business, because that's what he had done. And he was very, very successful in business. I went uh, for about a half semester. I recall I got to the midterm exams, and then I just quit going. I didn't tell my uh, parents, my dad and stepmother. I just quit going. And I spent my time doing other things. Uh, and part of that time was spent reading uh, the Tolkien Trilogy. But college was not something that I wanted to do. And I recall in January that next year, this would now be, well, 52 years ago, my parents asked me if I would be going back to college. And I said no. They said, what do you plan on doing? And I said something about listening to uh, music like Jimi Hendrix and uh, perhaps becoming a farmer. I knew nothing about farmer. I was raised uh, farming. I was raised in the suburbs of Houston. But I gave them the answer. Uh, they invited me to find someplace else to live. And so um, college was through for me. And then a Baptist pastor said, Mark, you have to go back to school. And I said, should I go back to the University of Houston? And he said, no, I think you need to go to a place called Howard Payne. I never heard of it. But uh, I went. Uh, his son was also starting Howard Payne at the same time to play football there. And it was a very different environment. When I was at the University of Houston, I, I can still remember the number that I was given, the student ID number. Uh, and this now approaching 53 years, I was number 190745. I was lost on campus in so many ways. And I arrived at Howard Payne and I had a group of faculty and staff people there who welcomed me in and spent time with me, teaching me not just about American history and chemistry. I took chemistry again, chemistry for majors, in fact, to try to redeem my lost academic soul. Um, but they taught me things about life that I had simply missed. And they invested in me in so many ways. And so now I come to this afternoon and, and uh, this conversation with you, Christopher, and I think it's implausible that I would be someone who would win this award because I was such a terrible student in high school, because I was a college dropout. But there were people who made a difference in my life, a profound difference. And so if you ask me, what does it mean to me that I would get this award? What it means is the point between 1969, when I dropped out of college, and the point today were two widely separated points that could only be bridged by grace. And I experienced it. And uh, this teaching award is an indication of that grace working in my life. And I am profoundly grateful. What do you hear from students 
about your own teaching and the impact that it has made on on them. I assume that in a lot of ways your teaching is animated by wanting to make the kind of difference in their lives that teachers made for you. You know, Christopher, on the way over, I happened to run into uh, uh, two of my students. They're they're both seniors, and they they know that I'm retiring, and uh, they just said thank you. They said we'll miss your stories, and is there any way that we can hear more of your stories that you've told over these years? And I said, well, maybe one more story at the senior recognition banquet, but I think. Um, what students have responded to is simply a reflection of what I saw as an undergraduate in my second chance education. Uh, the kind of attentiveness, the sort of presence uh, that I discovered with the teachers that I had as an undergraduate and then later in graduate school. Uh, that they're seeing those things of someone who wants to be present and who wants to equip them for the kinds of lives they're called to live. We know from your bio that you were teaching before you came to Baylor, teaching in kind of a traditional academic setting here at Baylor. How did you get involved in teaching at the Air Force Academy, and what was that like? Uh, do you know, uh, Christopher, it was like so many other things that I've experienced. It was not my plan that I would be there. Uh, I had gone into the Air Force uh, as an intelligence analyst. And um, initially, in my first couple of jobs, I'd worked as a Soviet specialist. And then I applied for uh, what the Air Force called at the time the Area Specialist Program. And um, I was selected for that. And I said I'd like to be able to uh, continue to study the Soviet Union. This was back in the 80s. And take Russian. And the Air Force said, thank you very much. You'll be taking uh, Arabic and studying the Middle East. So they propelled me in a direction, uh, commanded me to pursue a particular direction that was not of my choosing. And I thought, oh no, I can see the handwriting on the wall and I can't read it. And uh, that was pretty much the story with Arabic when I encountered it. But uh, they sent me for the two-year program. And when I finished, um, finished that program, it was a master's degree in national security studies with a focus on the Middle East and then a year of intensive Arabic. Uh, the Air Force assigned me to teach first at the Special Operations School, part of uh, U.S. Special Operations Command. And I taught Middle East Studies there. And then, because of the Arabic background, uh, the Air Force said um, they needed me to teach at the Air Force Academy. Um, and so I went there for three years. I taught Arabic, and I taught English literature. So it was uh, by order of... Uh, uh, the United States Air Force, that I landed at both of those teaching positions. And what is what is teaching like in that setting compared to what most of our listeners would be familiar with in, you know, in the, you know, the, the public or private kind of university setting is, I imagine, is a different beast. Oh, <laughs> Uh, in fact, that word beast was used at the Air Force Academy uh, because it uh, was an acronym that described uh, the basic uh, training that they would take before the academic year actually began for the freshman students at the Air Force Academy. It was a very different experience, and I think about that pretty regularly. Uh, the Academy uh, is a very structured environment, as you can imagine. Uh, it had a very large core program. In fact, I, I uh, just went back and checked. 
academy cadets right now will graduate with about 140 hours. 75 hours of that 140 are core education courses. And so every cadet, every cadet is going to be taking mechanical engineering, uh, aero engineering, astro engineering. They'll all take courses in law, economics, philosophy, uh, math, foreign languages. It's a demanding curriculum, as you can imagine. And because of the structure of the academy, and it would be this way at any of the service academies, whether uh, Annapolis or the military academy at West Point, it is so structured. Um, and the cadets are required to do so many things to maintain physical fitness, to do the military training they have to do, as well as the academics. And one of the things that I remember best was going into a classroom uh, with freshman cadets and trying to teach uh, principles of Arabic grammar at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I might think that the Arabic verb system, with its 10 measures, is a thing of great beauty. Uh, I was not always able to convince them of that. <laughs> and so I found oftentimes, uh, because when I was teaching Arabic, it was almost exclusively freshmen, or doulies, as they were called, or four degrees, or sometimes smacks. It's another acronym. The military lives and dies by acronyms. SMAC is student of the military without ability, courage, or knowledge. But I would go into the classroom, and I'd think uh, partway in, how do I wake these kids up? And so I sometimes in class would have them do push-up contests. And I found, actually, that the women uh, were on equal footing with the men. They were very, very fit. Um, I taught them how to count in Arabic. So we had assumed the position, and we start doing push-ups, counting off Wahid, Hithnain, Thalatha, Araba, Hamsa. We go through uh, the numbers in Arabic. Um, I had one thing uh, that I recall doing, and I would never be able to do this at Baylor, although I've joked about it. Uh, the students would sit at desks of about uh, five or six cadets each. And I would tell them, okay, we, we had old-style chalkboards still at the time. Say, now, if one of you falls asleep, I'm going to go to the chalkboard. And what appears to be pieces of chalk are, in fact, Scud missiles. I was riffing on uh, Saddam Hussein's Scud missiles from the first uh, Gulf War. said, um, I'll go to the blackboard. I'll pick up one of these Scud missiles. And the rest of you can take Dr. Peter Abood's large orange textbook. Uh, provocatively titled Modern Standard Arabic. <laughs> it's just a title that puts you asleep right off the bat. But I said, I said uh, you'll have some sleeper at your table. The rest of you can take your textbooks and form sort of an air defense system around the sleeper. And what I found when I uh, first did this, and it became a pattern, I went to the board and I recall getting a piece of chalk and the other students... I thought they were going to promote esprit de corps and build this air defense system. They didn't. They began to back up from the sleeper and then point in like laser designators. And one of the times that I did that, I took this piece of chalk and I, I threw it in the direction of the student, not with uh, great force. There wasn't a lot of velocity. But, you know, a, a shot across the bow is for the Navy. Um, the Air Force doesn't do that. And I hit this poor cadet right between the eyes and it left a chalk mark I, I can still see this poor kid sitting there stunned to alertness with uh, chalk between his eyebrows 
And um, at the end of class, I stood at the door um, to say something to each cadet. I would always do that. And I, I do that here, too. I try to say to greet every student in my classes here at Baylor by name, every class, say uh, goodbye to them at the end of class. The student walked up. I wanted to apologize. And um, he just started crying, and he walked off. And as much as anything, that was an indication to me the level of stress that the Air Force Academy cadets and cadets at the other schools would experience with these very structured lives. I can say they were high achieving, they were mission driven, uh, they were respectful. I didn't have any kind of discipline problems in class, although I would have the occasional sleeper. But they were motivated and it was a uh, it was a great opportunity to be able to invest in them and to know that I was investing in students who could well be going to war and be killed in combat. And that what I was doing in the classroom needed not just to teach them about the Arabic verb system, but to prepare them for what they would face uh, when they would confront their own mortality. Um, teaching at Baylor is a very different environment, of course. Um, but I still have that same sense of mission when I go into the classroom. Can you describe a little bit that adjustment to teaching at Baylor? It wasn't immediate, was it? You didn't you didn't jump right out of the classroom of uh, the Air Force Academy into no. Baylor. I <laughs> maybe that was a, another uh, act of grace uh, because when I left uh, active duty Air Force, I went into the Air Force Reserves and resumed something of the work that I had done when I first went into the Air Force uh, as an analyst and, uh, in fact, got to do some work with psychological operations. But I was working on my Ph.D., and that was uh, made possible by the Air Force. I had a real sense of indebtedness there because uh, it was in the, the mid-'90s. Uh, there was an Air Force drawdown, uh, a RIF, a reduction in forces, and I had the option of taking a very generous buyout program or continuing on in active duty. And I thought, I found a true home in teaching. And uh, I can take um, uh, this uh, reduction in forces bonus, uh, finish my Ph.D. I can still serve the, uh, in the Air Force and the Air Force Reserves. So I had a cushion there when I came back to school uh, to work on my Ph.D. And that, uh, I think, helped with the transition. Yeah. So you research, uh, in part, extremism in the Middle East, and I think more recently, extremism in America as well. That's true. Have you found any challenges dealing with political issues? Do you bring that research into the classroom at all, or perspectives that you gain from that research? I, I do bring it into the classroom, and I, I, feel it, uh, I feel it an obligation to do so. But I, I try to approach it with uh, sensitivity and real wisdom. I can give a couple of examples of how that unfolds. Uh, because Baylor is a Christian university, uh, when I'm teaching, for instance, the Arab-Israeli conflict, I know that there will be um, different points of view about uh, about the Israelis, about the Palestinians. And so I work very hard at uh, the way in which I'll try to approach that. And, and where I come down uh, initially maybe would please nobody, and at the end I hope it uh, makes sense for all the students in the class, but 
As I approach it, the first thing we do is to look at Jewish history and what I might call the gifts of the Jews. And I look at anti-Semitism, which has sadly long been a part of the church. It's uh, it's eye-opening to see the level of anti-Semitism that one can find in the early church fathers. Um, and then I, I take students up to Spain, and I'll say, fill in the blank. In 1492, and they instantly say, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And I say, what else happened in 1492? And they think for a moment, and usually will not have a ready answer. I'll say, in 1492, uh, the last uh, Muslim stronghold in Spain fell. And I describe uh, what that stronghold was like, uh, this magnificent series of castles uh, that was that constituted the last redoubt uh, of uh, Muslim Spain, but I I lead them through what uh, also followed that summer, that um, the Spanish monarchs gave the Edict of Expulsion, and I I link that to the United States, to say you know the Statue of Liberty, and of course they do. I said, the woman who wrote the inscription that's on the base of the Statue of Liberty, some of your poor, your tired, your huddled masses was herself a Sephardic Jew. The Sephardim are those Jews who came from Spain. And I, I tie that to America to say America historically has been a place of refuge, a place for refugees, a place for people who wanted to rebuild their lives, and that America could welcome the Jews is an extraordinary thing. But then I trace it on through uh, and to the Holocaust. We read Elie Wiesel's Night. Um, we read other Jewish writers as they uh, reflect post-Holocaust on what those horrific years uh, uh, really mean. And, and then I, I want to point to Honor Day Israel to say I've traveled there a number of times. I've been warmly welcomed in Israel. I love being in the country. Describe the differences between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, that it seems almost like uh, cities in two different countries. And then I, I want to affirm for them my wholehearted commitment to a viable state where every Jew can, in fact, I just read this in my quiet time, reading through the book of Micah, where Micah uses the expression of, of being able to dwell securely under one's own uh, vine and fig tree and to say I'm committed without reserve to the security of Israel and for the Jews to have a national homeland. And then I go back and I do essentially the same thing with the Palestinians and I trace their story to say at the end I want to advocate for a two-state solution in which both peoples can prosper in which there's stability in the region, a place in which uh, the national interests of the United States are met, but the national aspirations of both the Jews, Israelis, the Palestinians, the Arabs can be met. I bring that same thing into um, the course that I teach on American history, World Cultures Four. Um, I, I wore the uniform for 15 years. I tell students that. Um, my dad uh, was also in the Air Force. It was then the Army Air Corps. 
He was a pilot in World War II. Uh, my son flew combat missions as a part of um, uh, an airframe called the J-STARS. Uh, he was in uh, the Second Iraq War, 2003. I have two grandsons who wear the uniform, uh, though they broke faith. One is in the Marine Corps and the other is in the Navy. We have generations in our family who have served our country. And so I come to 2003 and the invasion of Iraq. And I want to say to students, I not only opposed the invasion of Iraq, but I demonstrated on Fountain Mall against the invasion of Iraq. Uh, the news was there. I was interviewed uh, in the spring of 2003 about that. And so I want to tell them, I demonstrated against the war because I'm still in the Air Force Reserves. It's, uh, I'm an inactive reservist, uh, but I said I've done so because I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I would bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And I have a moral and ethical obligation to stand up when I think that the policies of the United States do not meet our own best interest. They say, in doing so, I want to challenge the United States to live up to the promise of America. And I find that when I give context to, uh, to my students, try to tell them, here's why I have the perspective that I do, um, then I find that they're willing to, to, uh, to listen uh, to those stories that I might tell. I tell them, for instance, I, I'm a committed Christian. Uh, I became a Christian um, in February of 1969. My faith is meaningful to me. I just, I, when appropriate, I, I never preach in class, but when appropriate, I can describe uh, my quiet time or my perspective on life as a Christian. They say, I live in a country that is guaranteed religious freedom to all peoples who are here. That's our First Amendment. The first 16 words of the First Amendment secure that religious freedom. I take them to um, the Constitution itself. The seventh article of the Constitution is the article by which the Constitution was ratified. Um, that article did its glorious work and is no longer necessary. We have the Constitution. So the last um, living, viable article, as it were, uh, still in effect is Article 6. And Article 6 of the United States Constitution closes with the words that no religious test for office will ever be made. And I said, I'll say to my students, my dear friends, we live in a great country that has secured religious freedom irrespective of one's own conscience. It's inscribed on the soul of America and it's written in our founding documents. I do the same thing when I come to extremism. I try to say we, we commit a, an academic blunder if we essentialize Muslims, if we make them to be a monolithic entity. Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia is very unlike Sufism as it's been practiced in Turkey and in a number of other countries, just as Christianity has very distinct variations. And so I want to approach jihadist in that way. And, the same, and I do the same thing for ethno-nationalist now in Europe uh, and white nationalist in the United States to say this does not represent the best of our American interest. It's been my experience, very just, and this is completely 
anecdotal, my little corner, that students have become more sensitive to political discourse uh, in the class. You know, if, if I'll use, use just an example from modern politics as an illustration, I've started to see in my, in my own course evaluations, students say he shouldn't talk about politics so much. Uh, and I haven't talked about politics any more or less, but it seems to me that students are more sensitive to it. Like they've got their ears tuned to it in a different way. And I wonder if, if you can corroborate that and if you think that it's been more difficult to talk about politics with students and if this has been uh, problematic. Because especially with extremism, I think um, extremism is going through uh, a change in, in American culture right now. You know, just recently, you know, the RNC essentially described uh, the January 6th insurrection as legitimate political discourse. So that can't help but be reflected in some of our students. So I know that that's a heavy question, but uh, you might be the best person to ask. <laughs> Christopher, I don't know that I'm the best, but I'll, I'll essay an answer. Uh, back in the 80s, as I was doing my uh, Middle East uh, training, I recall hearing then and hearing a number of times after that, when you go to the Middle East, there are two topics you should never take up with the Arabs. They are politics and religion. And what I found was that my interlocutors from uh, Rabat, Morocco, to the north of Iraq, to Sana'a, Yemen, wanted to talk about politics and religion. And every country I went to, all the countries throughout the Gulf, uh, Tunisia, Egypt, Morocco, you know, it was always there. And so I, I think maybe easy to say, easiest to say that initially I got some training in talking about politics and religion and talking about politics and religion in the Middle East where I was told not to talk about it. And I didn't bring it up. Mm. Um, the Arabs would. And that meant uh, Arabs who were Muslims and Arabs who were Christians. It meant... Uh, uh, talking to Jewish Israelis about it. Uh, in fact, students are more sensitive to it now. But I have done my best to find ways to be able to talk through issues like that. And in fact, uh, what the RNC just said is very much on my radar. I don't consider it legitimate political discourse. Um, I've watched and watched and watched videos of the Capitol insurrection. I wrote an op-ed uh, that was published locally several weeks ago in conjunction with uh, January 6th. And I've studied, uh, I've studied the language. I've studied the texts that are behind it. Um, the passing of the great race, Madison Grant uh, from 1916. And forward, um, I, I've looked at the text. I don't think it's legitimate political discourse. I, in fact, I vigorously would dissent from that point of view. But what I've tried to do in my class is first not push a discussion of a particular topic like that, but as it comes up to be able to say, you know, I've worn the uniform, as I said a while ago. Um, in the years after 9-11, I consistently volunteered for a return to active duty. Every year I'd have to fill out paperwork for the Air Force Reserves, and I would say I... Uh, because it had the space on there to do it. I would say I'm a volunteer uh, to return to active duty or active reserve duty, uh, and I want to put it in writing. I'm a volunteer to go to Iraq or to Afghanistan, wherever my country needs. 
And so it gives me some credibility if I say I'm opposed to some particular policy directive or initiative with respect to national security, then I'm not, uh, I'm not voicing dissent because I hate America. It's because I love America, because I feel fortunate to be here. And I try to trace the story of America by being honest about uh, areas where we failed egregiously and areas where we have succeeded gloriously. And so it, is, it really is a joy for me to talk about the Marshall Plan and to see how transformative that was to show Americans participating in the Berlin Airlift when uh, we flew uh, with our British friends literally millions of miles to keep a starving city clothed and fed. Um, America at its best is the great hope of the world. And in that regard, fair for me to add this, because, because I am older, I just turned 71, and because I grew up in the South, um, I guess true Southerners in Mississippi and Alabama might dispute my claim that Texas is part of the South, uh, but I grew up in Houston and uh, spent a lot of time in East Texas and in Louisiana, uh, whence my uh, paternal and maternal lines. And I saw Jim Crow firsthand. I, I saw the separate bathrooms, the separate water fountains. I saw the separate facilities for school. I saw it. And so what I can say in the midst of uh, heated discussions about critical race theory uh, would be a couple of things. First, uh, the United States is not an inherently racist country. But we have certainly seen our share of racism in the United States, and we've seen its dramatic impact. And uh, I want to tell my students, because I've seen it, I want to work for the promise of America. And the way I put it is to say, um, I regard America as this constellation of values and of a, a vision where, as one historian of the 19th century put it, um, Frederick Jackson Turner America is another name for opportunity. And I want to say, my young colleagues, that's America. And it's incumbent on us as United States citizens to compel our country and whatever gifts and ways we are available to us to live up to the promise of America. That's the way you love America, by challenging the United States to live out those stated values. Aside from perhaps the increasing sensitivity and fraughtness of politics. What other ways have you seen undergraduate students change in your time here at Baylor? You've been here 20 years, is that right? I got here 27 years ago. I started teaching uh, in the fall of 2000 as an adjunct, and then um, fall of 2001 as a tenure-track faculty member. Um may be curious to say, perhaps not. The first thing that struck me in arriving on the campus is that students dress differently. <laughs> I was so accustomed then to seeing... Then the cadets. <laughs> then the cadets. Um, but I, um, I... Baylor students are, are remarkable people. They're, it's obvious to me that they're intellectually gifted. I sometimes joke that I, I prepare for class as diligently as I can. I... Um, I... I 
I go through the materials and think as hard as I can because I know these kids are smart and and sooner or later they're going to pass me up. <laughs> they, just, they just will do it. They're, they're gifted students, but I have seen a change. Uh, in, one, in one regard, it's really impressive. Uh, the data are there to, to back it up, that we um, attract students uh, of increasing academic ability, uh, a higher caliber, uh, with respect to test scores and their accomplishments as high school students. They really are an impressive lot. And uh, for me to go into the classroom and initiate a conversation is just exhilarating. And I've, I've often said that when I teach, I live. Uh, there's a, an analogy that I used in a very different context recently with somebody else. Uh, it's a, an advertisement that, that some will have seen for uh, Bose uh, speakers. And what it shows in this, this frame that I've seen is uh, it's a black and white picture of a fellow who's sitting uh, in a chair. There's a small Bose speaker in front of him. And you see that his hair is being blown back, his tie is being blown back uh, because of the power of this tiny Bose speaker. Well, I feel that way oftentimes in, in class, that I'm encountering um, this academic intellectual elan that for me really is exhilarating. And uh, the high point in any class for me is when the conversation can begin and I just walk over to the side of the classroom and let it go and periodically come back to kind of keep it uh, between the rails. So I see that academic ability. I see students coming in uh, with uh, hopes for making a real difference when they've graduated from Baylor. But on the other hand, and I, I want to be as honest as I can here, I, I find uh, the students that I see now not just driven, but oftentimes having a very hard path that they're following. Um, sometimes I think with some of the students, they just seem more fragile to me. Um, and, and I understand that they've come of age in a very, very difficult context. Uh, and, and the data are there to show both the academic prowess that these students bring and the various struggles that they have. I see it in an additional way. Uh, later this afternoon at 5, I'll walk over to Baylor's Addiction Recovery Center. I've been a faculty volunteer there now for, I guess, four years. And I'm grateful to the family, the Beecham family, that, that funded the Addiction Recovery Center. But week by week, I'll go over on Thursday afternoons and sit with the students. Um, the Addiction Recovery Center, the Beecham Addiction Recovery Center, goes by an acronym, the BARC. And so when I walk in the door of the BARC, um, there's no question that I'm older. <laughs> uh, the gray hair is a giveaway from 100 yards anyway. But when I go into the BARC, I become Mark from BARC. And I have the opportunity to sit in conversation with a circle of students who are struggling with drug and alcohol addiction, uh, who are struggling with depression, with anxiety. It's a range of things. And we come together in moments of honesty. And uh, just as an aside here, I'm grateful to this family for uh, giving funds for the center and for the willingness of Baylor 
to make available a center like that, as well as the counseling resources that we have. It is a great, great gift to our students. And there are times when I feel like my heart is breaking <laughs> uh, when I sit with these students. And, and maybe it's even heavier when I'm talking to students outside my academic classes and I see their struggles, but they're not going to the resources that Baylor has so generously provided. I, I don't force it, um, but I've seen some of my own students at the Addiction Recovery Center, and from time to time, when appropriate, and is as diplomatic way as I can, I tell some of my own story of having gone through a period now some years ago of uh, deep clinical depression. And it's an opportunity for me to say, and again, I, I try to be very, very circumspect in this, but I say, there really is hope. Change is possible. And I'm on the north side of that river now, and I'm so grateful to be there and so grateful to so many who have given me help along the way. Now it's my chance to pay forward what I've gotten. So when I walk over later this afternoon, it's to sit with students and to be able to quietly say thanks to people who have graciously helped me. I love talking with faculty and residents because a lot of times you'll get, if you engage them on questions about their interactions with students and how it translates into their teaching or even their reflection on teaching, these experiences with students in settings outside the classroom really dial up the empathy. <laughs> That's so right? true. You know, and that can't help but change how you approach your teaching, even if it's primarily philosophically. Um, how have how have you changed in your teaching either as a result of how you've gotten to relate to students or just as a result of, you know, decades in the business? Well, you know, um, I, when I got here to Baylor, I, I was older. My, my objective uh, when I left active duty, went in the reserves and started my PhD was to be able to finish my degree and uh, be in the classroom. I, I had two points. So I wanted to be able to do that before I turned 50 and before I had my first grandchild. And uh, I flunked both tests. <laughs> I was 50 uh, it had turned 50 before I finished the degree, and I had my first uh, grandchild, a grandson, who's uh, now in the United States Navy. But I came in uh, with certainly an array of experiences. I'd worked as an intelligence analyst. The Air Force had sent me uh, um, virtually around the world uh, to uh, places where we do intelligence, both stateside and overseas. I had a range of experiences, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, I, I'd, I'd ridden in Egyptian taxis, which is a pretty scary thing, and I'd drunk coffee with the, with the Saudis and uh, been in the, in the souks of uh, Morocco. And, and I had the academic training now when I went into the classroom. And I think that the most profound way in which my, my um, approach to teaching in the classroom has changed is that I came in with um, with the understanding of text that I had, the experiences that I had, and I was a transmitter of knowledge, as it were. I don't know that it would stick or has stuck, but now I see the classroom in a very different way. 
and I've described it like this, that when I go into the classroom now, and I tell students in every class at the start of the semester, I tell them this, I want us to conceive that what we're doing is sitting in a circle. There is a text or an idea at the center. And our, our responsibility in the first place is to listen as closely as we can to that text. And I tell them, I am a student with you. I've read the text before. I've read the Bhagavad Gita a number of times and the Epic of Gilgamesh. And uh, I've read uh, the Great War memoir um, uh, that we use in World Cultures 4 that looks at Vietnam, uh, the things they carried. But there's always something new for me to learn. So I'm going to sit with you in this circle um, it may just be a metaphor, but it's the way I approach it and say, we'll listen, uh, then we'll begin to interrogate the text, we'll ask it questions, uh, and then our objective ultimately is to see what we can take from the text that changes us and that equips us to be agents of change elsewhere. And that for me has been a powerful uh, metaphor for what it is that I hope to uh, do in the class. The other thing uh, came about from uh, something that C.S. Lewis wrote. It was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the last book that Lewis published before he died in uh, November of 1963. And the book is called, it's a more novella length, it's called An Experiment in Criticism. And in the last chapter of the book, there are a couple of standout pages uh, that I have um, uh, copied and I've used with students every semester. Because when Lewis comes to the end of this book, An Experiment in Criticism, he poses the question, uh, why do literature? And that's his verb, why do literature? And Lewis says, because it lets us out. And then he, he answers it again. He says another way of putting it is that it lets us in. We pierce, as Lewis writes, the Leibnizian monad. And he goes on to say, uh, as he surveys world literature, and that's what makes us so powerful. It's not just Christian literature. He's engaging world literature. He comes to say, my eyes are not enough for me. I would see with the eyes of a thousand others. And he goes on to add that um, literature, it's a, it's a powerful phrase, Literature heals the wound without destroying uh, the beauty of, um, of our own individuality. And so I say to students, that's what we want to do. We want to see with other eyes. And Lewis writes in this uh, powerful essay uh, that he doesn't agree with everything that he's read. Uh, he doesn't agree with everything that he's read in the Iliad. He brings that in specifically, Thetis rising from the sea. Uh, but he still derives from, things, from all of them something of benefit. And it's, it's similar to something that St. Augustine wrote uh, in one of his sermons when he said that he's engaged other literature because he's taking away silver from the mines of divine providence. So I say, it's going to be our task. We want to be able to derive from these texts we read something of value even where our perspective is fundamentally different. And that transformed the way that I look at my classes. And the, maybe the best example is the class that I teach on the Middle East. I tell them, 
we're going to read about the Middle East, but it's not just to get information. At the end of the class, my real hope is this, that we will be able to read events in the Middle East, both literally and figuratively, that we will be able to read events in the Middle East from the perspective of the participants themselves. It's the cultivation of empathy, which I think is essential to a humanistic education, and most certainly for us in our enterprise as a Christian university. So I want them to see the perspective in this middle class, uh, Middle East class of the Palestinians and of the Israelis. Um, and, and in fact, we'll use that to interrogate the jihadist. Uh, what the jihadists do is morally reprehensible. It's deplorable. But we still want to ask what motivates them. If we can't understand that, we can't develop an effective national security strategy to counter it. And my hope is to be able to do that with students when we engage the American story, to see these different perspectives um, and to be able to engage different perspectives with respect even when we are committed politically in different ways, to be able to cultivate this capacity to listen. And even though we're not sympathizing in all instances, we can at least empathize. Well, since you are retiring at the end of this spring semester, now is your chance for any parting thoughts. What advice do you have for new or young faculty or graduate students who have a faculty role maybe on their horizon with this whole academia and teaching business? You know, the first thing I think I'd say is uh, to put in an advertisement uh, for your work, Christopher, and, and those of your colleagues in the Academy of Teaching and Learning, it is a fantastic resource. Uh, I've now had uh, the opportunity twice to be able to be a part of the Summer Faculty Institute. Uh, once, uh, the first time as a, a very new instructor here at Baylor, and then again just several years ago, and drew a great deal from it both times. Um, there is so much that's covered there of such great value, how to integrate uh, faith and learning, how to integrate uh, teaching and research, to teach what you research, to research what you teach, to find ways to balance uh, one's time, uh, not only within the classroom and research, but uh, uh, balancing that with a home, with one's own home life. There's so much of benefit I drew from it. And beyond that, when I think about uh, the academy and about the Summer Faculty Institute, uh, the opportunity to meet um, uh, our academic professional peers from across campus. There are people that I met almost 20 years ago with whom I still have a friendship, and they are from very different departments to include, I think of Mike from electrical engineering, for instance, electrical engineering and computer science. But there are any number of people I met in that capacity and it actually parallels something, if I can bring the military back in. Uh, when I started officer training school, I had little idea of what to, to expect. But in our individual squadrons, uh, there were other men and women uh, who had been enlisted and who now wanted to um, commission as officers. And I learned so much from those prior enlisted folks about what the, the real Air Force, if I can use that phrase that I heard so often, what the real Air Force would be like. And it was everything from learning how to put on my uniform to what to expect in dealing with the personnel office to being 
uh, a leader among young women and men who were enlisted. The Academy for Teaching and Learning and the Summer Institute will do some of that. But there's some ideas beyond that that I could chart out briefly. One is to learn the art of mindful teaching. And there are any number of texts that someone could um, find that will speak to that about how to ask questions in class that provoke real interest. Um, a second thing that I would put in is the power of uh, integrity and presence. We don't have to impress students with our academic credentials. Uh, uh, we come with PhDs or other terminal degrees, and so students know uh, abovo from the outset uh, that uh, that we have worked hard to come to this place where we have that degree and have now been uh, brought on board with the faculty at Baylor. But what I find is that students want to meet the person behind the professor. And they want to find someone who really has uh, compassion as well as academic excellence in their teaching, who uh, has a presence about her, about him, about him, uh, that is there uh, for the, the students to access. Uh, to be able to build those kinds of relationships has been a great joy for me. And I've thought many times if, if I'd been offered the opportunity to teach at the University of, Lex uh, University of Texas, where I did do uh, some postgraduate work, where my father went, where my daughter went, my aunt went, uh, uh, part of me is orange. Um, but if, if that were the offer to teach at Texas, where I would do lectures to large groups of students and some teaching assistant would grade their exams, I'd say, that's not for me. I want what happens in the classroom. And I have to bring all of myself into the classroom to be present to all of them. And the last thing I would say is to learn how to tell stories. I've had students who graduated and they will come back and say, I remember the story you told about. And they'll, they'll tell me the story. Uh, sometimes the stories have a, an immediate connection to something we're talking about in, in class, maybe Arab culture, and the power of this little phrase, Masha'Allah, which means what God wills, how it works in that culture, uh, how it uh, can give a Westerner an entree to that culture. And uh, they'll remember that story. If I just told the principal, that, you know, they may remember it for the exam and then forget it, but they won't forget the story. And then occasionally, and usually for me, it's maybe every other week uh, on a Friday in, the, say, the last five minutes of class, I want to tell a life story. I want them to hear something that is of fundamental importance to me. And one of those life stories I can tell briefly here. Uh, it's, just, it's just the story that came to me now. My dad was an Air Force pilot, as I indicated earlier, in World War II. He was fascinated by flight, and it transferred to any number of things uh, in later years uh, when I was growing up. Uh, when I learned how to drive in Houston, it seemed like he brought in the stories of air combat, and he would tell me, okay, Scooter, that was his nickname for me, keep your head on a swivel. <laughs> I didn't just have people following too closely uh, behind me. I had bogeys at 6 o'clock. But his love of flight transferred to something else. And I recall being at a lake with him, and we were watching ducks land on the lake. And he said, Scooter, watch this. 
watch this duck as it comes in. Watch how he adjusts the flaps. Oh, what a great landing. He would get so enthusiastic about it. But what um, seemed most profound to Dad was watching geese. And he transmitted to me this love of the flight of geese. And to hear that, I think of a term that uh, General Douglas MacArthur used in a very different context. He was talking about the toxin's witching sound. A toxin is a is a bugle that's used in combat. But the geese, for me, have that sound. And I, I have a love for that that comes from my dad. But he would you'd see the geese flying overhead and he would talk about what it was like to fly in formation. And he found it very, very moving. So I grew up with that love and I brought it to the Baylor campus. And I recall one day outside uh, the BSB, um, it was class change and students and faculty and staff were all out in that area between the, the slick and the BSB and it seemed like everyone was on his or her phone. Uh, all heads were bowed. I don't think they were praying, but everyone was was on the phone. And then I heard, I, I heard that witching sound. And I looked up and the geese were flying overhead. And I wanted to say, I didn't, maybe should have, but I wanted to say to everyone around me, stop. Look up. Look up. It's the geese. And I've told that story several times to my students, and I said, that's one of the gifts that I want to give you at Baylor. It's the gift of the geese. That to say, we can be so caught up in what's immediate, in the cares of the day, the the next text we got on the phone, whatever it happens to be, and there's something magnificent, something magical, something powerful that is beyond us, that beckons to us, that says, look up. I want my students to do well, but I also want them to look up. And they, I think, can take that metaphor and, as it were, they can fly with it. Look for the geese. Well, Mark Long, congratulations again on the teaching award. Thank you for your work here at Baylor, and thank you for sharing your stories with us today. Christopher, thank you so much. Our thanks again to Dr. Mark Long for speaking with us today. In today's show notes, you'll find links to the Beauchamp Addiction Recovery Center at Baylor and C.S. Lewis's An Experiment in Criticism. That's our show. Thanks for listening, and join us next time on Professors Talk Pedagogy.